Welcome to Factor Magri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week I talk with farmers and producers, industry, the science community and policy makers to hear their views on matters relevant to both our rural and our urban communities. Now this week on Factor Magri, farmer Emma Crutchley joins me with her thoughts on some key areas around environment policy and in particular the importance of sequestration recognition. Emma joins me now. Hello Emma, thank you for joining me today. G'day, how are you going? Yeah, good, good, good. Um, please can you tell me about your farm, where you are located and what you farm? So um, I come from a little place in central Otago, um, probably the, the south southwest corner of the Maniatoto near Ranfrilly. Um, and our farm's called Pokotoi, and so we're a um, three th- just under 3,000 hectare hill and flat um, farm, and that's pretty much splits the farm in two between hill country and flat, and mm. um, we're about 500 hectares of irrigation because mm-hmm. um, we're in an incredibly dry climate. Mm-hmm. Um, we're um, sheep and beef um, and arable, yep. um, and um, we finish all our lambs on farm and also um, some trading lambs as well. Yep. And, um, yeah, that's us. Fantastic. How has winter been on farm this year? Yeah, like I honestly, I feel I feel a sense of guilt talking about our winter because um, our rainfall, uh, we have a rainfall of average annual rainfall of 350 millimetre, millimetres here. So it's, yep. it's incredibly rain, low rainfall. So when the rest of the country is suffering from those insane floods up around Nelson and Melbourne, um, we are um, busking in a little bit of sunshine. I mean, yeah. it's wet underfoot, but it's, it doesn't really do us any it doesn't do us any damage at all, and like probably just to put things in perspective, like we can we can slip down to three hundred millimeters per annum, and um, I know that Melbourne have had three times that um, over the past couple of weeks, and it's yeah, it seems insane. Yeah, mm. it has been brutal. So I certainly feel for those farmers and all the communities combined. It's been very very tough. Yeah, and it. And it takes a long time to recover from that, right? Like it's it's not going to be something that is just a, oh, yeah, we'll fix that couple of weeks, you're back on your feet. That that could take sort of like years. And, That's right. Um, and, and, and it's like it, it comes back to sort of that topic around climate change, right? Because it's something that we're going to see more and more of. Yeah, well, certainly the science is telling us that. I've done quite a bit of work with NIWA uh, over the years and mm. certainly – uh, the science that I've discussed with Niwa is certainly suggesting that we can expect more extreme events like we have been seeing the last few months, particularly on the East Coast. So yes, some further challenges ahead. But today, uh, we're talking a bit about farm sequestration. In your view, is total on-farm sequestration being accurately measured and recognised in this country? Yeah, well, it's probably, um, just to take a step back on that one, like it's like it's a bit of a timeline, right? Like um, in 2019, the government, they, they put forward that intent to bring uh, agriculture into the east and that sort of, it had been kicked for touch for quite a long time around that and um, learning more and more about it because at that stage, like <laughs> at the time, like looking at it happened and I was like, what just happened? I don't know enough about this. So mm. after learning more about it, um, you sort of, you could see that extreme gap between policy and reality, mm. um, like um, reality of, of what um, 
emissions and, and climate change and around that and what the policy that those blunt mechanisms within the ETS at that time was actually trying to like what it, what it was trying to achieve but what it, what were the adverse outcomes around that and so um, on-farm sequestration was a big part of that especially in this part of the world and um, in our example like we've um, over the past sort of I've been home on this farm for 12 years and mm. we sort of like to aim for about sort of probably 600 to 1,000 trees a year. And and that's not many compared to a lot of people, right? But mm, when mm. you plant a tree, when you plant a tree in a 350 mil rainfall area, you yeah. actually have to roll out the pipe, you have to put in the weed trickle thing and yep. and turn the, set up the water supply, which, hey, we're lucky enough to have for our local um, irrigation scheme. But, um, and like, if you take that back, like there's also... Um, previous to us coming home, my parents planted a lot of tree lanes and it was made easier when the schemes came through in the 80s. And even before that, my grandfather planted heaps of trees. And and we're um, in this really extreme climate where a lot of those um, trees, which are um, my my grandfather's, um, they're actually still sequestering because they grow so slowly mm. in this climate that they're actually... But if you look at what, um, under the ETS, what what happens in there is that um, everything pre-1990, okay, that doesn't, it's gone on that. And all the reason we actually plant a lot of trees in this extreme climate is for shelter. Mm. And it's not just for shelter for crops and all that, it's shelter for livestock. And so we're working on this sort of um, nature-based approach to um, improving the farm system. And um, so most of them, like, are too narrow and mm. they won't count in the ETS. So no, your answer that like the answer like is it being accurately measured? No, it's not because you can look out the window and see hundreds of trees around um, the Miniatoto, even wider than this farm, and they're all in these narrow tree lanes which won't be counted. And therefore, that leads into the issue around people look at like what happens with emissions, and you don't, you, you're not getting recognition for what you're actually sequestering. Yeah, and so um, with the ATS, like that was that direct tax on food production. Um, it, but like, um, I came back. I actually went um, to Massey Uni and did the deep greenhouse gas course, and mm-hmm. that was in two thousand and nineteen. And I sort of came back and like, like thinking about what you do. And I, we could have got out and planted all those blocks, but we sort of like, oh no, I'm sort of going to take a practical approach, and we've sort of mixed it up a little bit and planted some blocks and planted some narrow tree lanes. And I was actually quite excited when um, the proposals for Hawaka Ekanoa actually recognised tree lanes because it meant the common sense, to a certain extent, had prevailed. I mean, it's not perfect, but mm. we were going to get recognition for what we could see on farm and um, were balanced out with all the emissions around livestock and nitrous oxide. Yeah. Nothing's perfect, but certainly there needs to be recognition and an attempt made to measure these things. But in saying that, there are a number of tools that actually can measure sequestration reasonably accurately. So why do you think the Climate Change Commission has suggested that bringing on-farm vegetation, for example, into a farm-level emissions pricing system adds complexity when there are tools out there that measure just that? Yeah, well, to their credit, like, it is incredibly complex. Like it really is. Like, um, um, but the thing what they did is um, they proposed that cross ecosystem approach, which actually 
is more complex. <laughs> mm. And what it did then is it, it shifts the goalposts again. And so, mm. like, um, for example, what we've got here, like this year we've upped our tree planting to around um, 3,000 trees, um, which is going to be a bit of a push. But, um, like, I've got them all stuck in my veggie garden and I'm, I'm sort of wondering where, like, I had a plan and when the Climate Commission came out with their recommendations, I sort of just took a step back and thought we might just have to wait a tick here. So what that does is it, it stops any movement forward. Mm. Um, like, Climate change policy and any policy around environmental challenges is wicked, like they term it as a wicked problem, right? Because because it, it, it almost defies solution and it's got this incredible scale and complexity. And um you like in that you're never gonna you're never gonna quite solve it. And it like, but with the pace of change, it sort of requires you to step forward and it requires you to step forward into something that's like this. Probably this wicked shade of grey rather mm. than black and white. Like it's never going to be black and white. It's never mm. going to be perfect. But but it's a marathon relay, not a sprint. Mm. Um, and we've we've got to be able to move forward around that. And mm. like with with the um, the Hewakikana proposals, it actually gives us a starting point. Like we can work with that. We can look at our window and see all these trees and these tree lanes and actually know that it means something and get some resonation around the why the primary sector was given a deadline and like it was based on policy and speed of change and they were never ever going to get that down or something that was actually right down within what was it two and a bit years mm. um but but yeah so it was it was just too complex but like I think it's worth acknowledging that and and when you are trying to move forward and for the Climate Change Commission to say out and come it's too, and say it's too complex, it's like, yeah, you're right, it is complex, but um, you can't solve an environmental challenge in two years. You can mm. you can just get it sort of close enough so it allows people resonation with the wider move forward. The Climate Change Commission also stated that bringing on-farm vegetation into a farm-level emissions pricing system could reduce the incentives for farmers to reduce their emissions. For me, all that stuff is irrelevant, whether it's going to reduce incentives or not. For me, it's actually about getting real numbers and accurate figures first as a starting point. Yeah, so like the, the interesting thing about that one is that I don't think they've quite grasped how complex the situation is on ground. Like there's no way... Um, there's no way that all our tree lanes are going to come anywhere near close to um, helping us offset our on-farm emissions. Um, that's just not possible. But what you need to be able to do is look out the window and actually look at a tree lane and, and understand that that actually counts. Mm. Um, and I think that's really, that's really important. So like as Kiwis, like we, we pride ourselves in this number eight wide ethos and that unfailing sense that everyone should be given a fair go. And that's like a fair representation of our culture. Like when, when, when you put policy in place, like the first thing New Zealanders will do, and, and you've seen it, right? Like everyone just turned around and says, why? Why are we doing this? And so you've got to understand that why. And I think the, the people that are best placed to do that is those, those of us on the ground that understand it, right? Like, and, um, I guess, like, for us, like, one of the things that has been really challenging is I've been quite involved in setting up, like, a large catchment project in the past um, three, or four, three or four years. Yep. And um, with that, um, we live in the, in the Mini Ototo. It's an open tussock grassland. And um, we're sort of 
90,000 plants over five years and they're all tussocks and grasses mm. and those tussocks and grasses, um, they don't actually count but it does allow us to bring in some of the woody vegetation around the edges of that and then you've got then you've got something that actually counts and if that that is not there and it doesn't count, then that catchment group actually can't incentivise um, they can't incentivise those plantings because um, me as a farmer is going to turn around and say, I don't want to spend money on that, sorry, because I need to plant my pine trees. I need to plant my pine trees in a big, massive square so mm. I can um, continue continue to be viable for what I'm trying to do as a farmer. And like, mm. we're not saying we're not saying that we want to um, like they talk about the incentives. Like the biggest incentive we have is the fact that carbon farming is worth eighty six dollars a ton at the moment and that completely blows out of the water sheep and beef farming right like um so at least if you can um if you can start looking at these nature-based solutions that fit within when i mean they're not perfect but they still will work within there then you've actually got something to work with that doesn't yeah. incentivize you to blanket forestry so i think Although they're well-meaning within that and what they're trying to do, I don't think they're quite grasping how these extensive sheep and beef properties actually work. Mm. And you've touched on carbon farming. Do you think the ETS in its current form is working well? And what are your real thoughts on wholesale land use change into forestry for the sole purpose of carbon farming? Do you think that we can plant our way out of this? So (laughs) the only thing... um, with the ETS and how well it works in its current form, like it works really well if you're an international company that really needs to offset their fossil fuel emissions. But in terms of agriculture, like um, and we we know this, right? It's well discussed. It's a direct tax on food production, and so what it does is it it, it takes away the tools and the toolbox that incentivise the right practice change, mm. um, and that's sort of around that that what I was talking about before. Like the mm. simplest thing, if we were if we were really economically driven here, we would just go out and plant a big square of trees on the farm. Yeah. Um, but but it's not it's not about that, right? Um, mm. um, in terms of like the wholesale land use change, like to forestry. Um, Effective environmental policy changes behaviour or it drives that practice change in a way that is appropriate for the needs of rural communities. And we all know the history around forestry. Like forestry has its place. It's a really important part of what uh, of of our um, of our country. Yeah. But it, but we've seen what it can do to rural communities. And at the at the moment that that economic drive, it's not it's not appropriate for the needs of rural communities and it's not being recognised. I completely agree on that. Are farmers easy targets for policymakers, do you think? And the disregard of total on-farm sequestration by the Climate Change Commission is politically motivated rather than to find real emission numbers. And we sort of briefly touched on this before, but I can't help but think it's politically charged if they aren't prepared to recognise total on-farm sequestration. Well, I don't, like, yeah, I don't think that... um, the Climate Change Commission is actually, like, I don't think they're doing this on purpose. I just think they don't quite understand what the the um, the levers are, right? Like, mm. those wicked problems and the wicked problems, another factor around that is um, the fact that one problem, we have one problem and then you create six others. And it's like in forestry when you plant trees along a waterway, 
all of a sudden you get a water quality issue. Um, though everything interacts. Um, but I think, like, to their credit, that like the Climate Change Commissions are focused on exotics and they're worried about the issue of um, blanket forestry and they've been open, openly campaigning um, to change that, right? But, mm. um, like, the, um, the people um, that are best placed to come up with some of these solutions around... Um, around um, these challenges and to their, um, their other scheme around nature-based solutions. Like um, a lot of that is actually covered within the proposals as they stand at the moment. And with that ownership and that resonating why that you can get by my tree lanes being recognised, that will give people like me um, that drive to actually say, yep, I can do this. I can, um, I can engage with this process and actually get to where um, get innovate around the challenge to create a solution, and that's not going to happen um, with um, with the climate change commission working at that level because they don't they don't understand it. They don't yep. understand it like we do. So then, why don't they just simply adopt the Hiwaki Ekanoa proposal as it is? As you say, they're missing a beat, and clearly they aren't equipped necessarily with the right tools within their organisation. But here is an organisation, Hiwaki Ekanoa, which is a collaboration of many, many groups, parties, and entities with what is seemingly a fair and equitable system, which is in part being completely ignored by the Climate Change Commission. Yeah, I hope I hope we can get past this. Mm. <laughs> I hope we can get past this, and because I. I think what, like, what is understated in this whole climate change thing, and um, is the fact that is there eleven parties in Hawaii? You know, eleven parties. Um, it's that collaboration, right? And no one party, and you can say this, has got exactly what they want within that. But they've been there and they've been on a journey, so they've got they've all agreed and they're all owning the challenge. And I just think that is so powerful. And at some stage, the Climate Change Commission and our government has got to actually realise that how important that is, like that collaboration. And if it's driven politically, like the, there's no way you can ever get the outcomes that you want because it takes it's taken ownership away from the sector. Yeah, and, and you're quite right. I mean, having yeah. 11 groups and organisations, government agencies, all coming together and essentially providing a proposal that is a collaborative document and plan yeah. uh, with all these entities is quite something and shouldn't be sniffed at the work and the sacrifice and the give and take that has gone on by each individual organization to find some consensus around a plan. Yeah. And, and like it's that, it's that, um, the social factor, right? Like, um, I think that's, it's, it's something that's often missed when you're talking about environmental policy and we've seen buckets of it come out of, um, MFE um, in the past few years, they, they, it's none of it's done with a social lens. And um, if I'm being honest, that that pan sector collaboration is is really the first chance we've had to own the problem. Because um, if those if they're not done with that social lens, you you miss the opportunity for the resonating why and to move people forward. And like for people to be able to move forward because they understand why. And and it like it's probably um putting my life on the line saying that because a lot of people um and rightly so like that why is still really hard to understand. But it brings back to that fact that I mentioned earlier, like um given those deadlines, they actually um have come up with something that's workable and and 
and that's a real challenge in what just over two years and it's also a huge achievement but um we we need to stick with that and move forward because it's not not it's not going to resonate if it's something that's put to us by government or the climate change commission because i don't think they're close enough to understanding those levers and like um i think like we just we need to yeah we need to keep ownership over that challenge and then um, we will actually have a chance at solving or mm. moving forward to actually getting some outcomes around the problem. Mm. Where does this all end for the farmer? Do you think it's seemingly endless constant is, policy pressure? It's, yeah, it is. It's totally endless because it's a wicked problem, right? Like <laughs> it's not that re- it's not a sprint. It's that relay marathon. Like it's gonna. It's just something that you have to like stay part of the conversation and. 100% you have to stay at the table and continue and pass it back on to the next person that comes on and they continue on moving on because it's it's never going to be, oh, yeah, we've solved climate change. Mm. Are you proud of the work mm. you and your family do on farm and the contribution you make both socially and economically to New Zealand? Yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't be doing it if I didn't love it. But the thing that drives me and probably most farmers and um, is the fact that um, we do have ownership over what we do and mm-hmm. um, we get we get to do what we love and understand and build solutions around it. The minute <laughs> the minute you start you start getting dictated to, that's when that's when you're not right. And that social mm-hmm. lever around that is, oh yeah, it is actually a lot easier. These people don't believe in what I do. It's quite a lot easier just to put these trees all over this farm and take that $86 a ton. Mm. Emma, I thank you very, very much for your time and thoughts today. No worries. I think Emma is right. You can question whether the Climate Change Commission really know what they are doing when it comes to advising government on what farmers should or should not be doing. Hiwaka Ekonoa is quite the achievement in my view bringing together many organisations, all of which have made concessions in order to formulate a plan that is fair and workable. The list of organisations include Apiculture New Zealand, Beef Plus Lamb New Zealand, Dairy NZ, the Dairy Companies Association of New Zealand, Deer Industry New Zealand, Federation of Māori Authorities, Federated Farmers of New Zealand, Foundation for Arable Research, Horticulture NZ, Irrigation NZ, Meat Industry Association, Ministry for Primary Industries and Ministry for the Environment. So why would the Climate Change Commission go against this group's recommendations in its entirety, especially when it appears to not fully understand the lay of the land? Farmers are not trying to get away scot-free or dodge their responsibilities, but they should be able to look outside and know all the trees and vegetation on their property that are sequestering carbon, no matter the individual size of the area, is being recognised. That is fair and equitable. That's all from me this week. Thank you for listening and catch you next time.